This is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Soledad O'Brien, along with Gene Chatsky. A few weeks ago, we were talking between breaks about estate planning because we've both been sort of in the middle of estate planning. And how do you do it in a way that doesn't just dot the I's and cross the T's, but actually helps you figure out equitable solutions? How do you make sure you're dividing things up in a way that makes sense? Is it just parity? Everybody gets a certain percentage. So Jean mentioned, she's like, well, we should do a show on that. And we often talk about the actionable items. Make sure you have a will. Make sure you have a trust. But I think we need to dive into the how do you really figure out who gets what and how and how do you make that decision? So that's going to be the focus of our conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. Because Fair and equitable aren't always the same thing. And as we think about our plans for our families and our children and all the organizations that we want to support, it gets complicated. And the last thing that you want is a fight after you're gone. You want your kids to be able to just get along. So joining our conversation to help us sort all of this out is David York. David is an estate planning attorney, a CPA, and the author of The Gift of Lift, Harnessing the Power of Stewardship to Elevate the World, which is a big promise. We'll ask him about that. David has worked with thousands of clients, billionaires, business owners, celebrities, sports figures, entrepreneurs of all shapes and sizes and has represented first-generation wealth creators, fifth-generation wealth maintainers, and pretty much everything in between. Welcome to the show, David. We're so excited to have you. Hi, David. Yeah, nice to be on the show. Really appreciate the chance to talk with you guys. We appreciate having you. Listen, I know you've worked with billionaires and business owners and celebrities and like sports stars and entrepreneurs, first generation wealth creators, fifth generation wealth maintainers, and everybody in between. So I'm curious if the people who've had the money the longest and maybe the people who had the most money, the billionaires and the fifth generation wealthy people, do they do it the best? Have they figured it out? Well, to a certain extent, they have because they're part of an incredible minority. Reality is, you know, we've, you may have heard the old proverb of shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. You know, mm-hmm. the first generation creates the wealth, the second maintains it, the third spends it. And you see that a lot in society and, and you see that a lot in family businesses. You know, 70% of family businesses want to transition to the next generation, 30% do. By the time you get to the third generation, it's down to under 10%. So to a certain extent, yes, they did figure at least something out with respect to the wealth. Now, whether they understood anything more broadly than the finances is a different question, but uh, they certainly are the exception. Interesting. Your new book, David, has this bold subtitle. It's The Gift of Lift, and the subtitle is Harnessing the Power of Stewardship to Elevate the World. That's a lot. That is a big goal. What happened in your life? You went from, hey, you need a will, to let's change the world. You know, it started with an experience I had uh, six years ago with Gail Miller. I think she's number seven wealthiest self-made women in the world. 
owner of the Utah Jazz, among other things. And we were working on a plan to make sure that the Utah Jazz stayed in the state of Utah indefinitely. And for those of you who have not been to Utah, we're a small market. We're a one-team state. So it's a big deal here. And so we were working on this trust to do that. And just out of conversation, I asked her, I said, so how will it feel to no longer own the Jazz? And she looked up at me from the docs we were reviewing, and she said, well, I don't own the Jazz. And I thought for a second, mm, well, that, you know, here I am. I'm her estate planner, and <laughs> she is one of the smartest, wisest people I've ever met. Incredibly smart. And so I was a little taken aback, and I said, well, no, actually, you do own the Jazz. And I'll never forget. She stopped, and she looked at me, and she said, no. I'm a steward of the jazz. Oh. And it was really one of the most powerful experiences of my life because to that point, I've always seen ownership as the top of the pyramid. And that's what we look at. Who's the owner? Who's the creator? Who has the wealth? And here is someone who has transcended that. And she found something that was higher than ownership. So it really sent me on this six-year journey of trying to figure out, okay, what is stewardship? Why is it so different and how was she able to get to that point of not just intentionality, but freedom? I love this idea because I like the concept of a mind shift around how you think about something. The minute you start thinking about stewardship, it's not just all that I can get out of it. It becomes generations long past when you're dead, you're handing something forward. How do you get from thinking about something as just inheritance? I have a thing. I took care of it, as eked what I could out of it, and then handed it off or sold it or whatever. How do you get from inheritance to stewardship outside of just the, oh, I'm framing it differently in my head now? The reality is so much of estate planning is about how and what. How do we do estate planning? What do we need to do? But rarely do we ever ask the why and the who. What is the why of my wealth and who do I want to impact? And when we're about possessions and property, it becomes very easy to get granular and strategic. But really, we need to be more about purpose and people and then let that drive the planning that we do. And so sometimes I think we shortchange the why when we focus on the how. We also shortchange the why when we focus on what things cost, when we focus on value being equivalent to cost. How should we be thinking about the value of things? One of the things I call it the paradox of wealth. Most, especially wealth creators who create wealth, they do it through what? Hard work, risk, stress, sleepless nights, worry, right? As a result, they highly value the wealth that they have. What does wealth help us to avoid? Hard work, risk, stress, <laughs> sleepless nights, right? And so unfortunately... Well, we sometimes see the pain of cost, we don't realize the value that it brings. And so that's why I think the average American inheritance is spent in 18 months. You know, if you look at it, what people build and grow over their lifetime is in America on average consumed within 18 months. And it's because the wealth that we create over our lifetime, we so value it because it costs us so much. I can transfer the financial resources as an estate planner. I can't transfer the cost. And so sometimes what we end up doing is undermining the very value that we transfer. Part of what we need to all recognize is that cost and that pain and that work that we put in 
actually creates the value that we see in what we have today. And so how do we actually harness that while effectively transferring wealth? I think that's ultimately the secret of those fifth generations. Are you seeing a shift in how people think about that why when they start thinking about purpose? I don't know that years ago people were having this conversation that it was always about just, you know, wealth, 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 grow your wealth versus, well, what is the reason behind it? What's the purpose? And harnessing that purpose can help future generations actually begin to understand why you did all that you did and maybe value it differently. It's not just dollars and cents and, hey, now you have money, you can spend it down, but it, it represents something that could be good in the world. Are, are you seeing a big shift? Yeah, I think you're exactly spot on. I mean, the reality is when I started practicing, I worked primarily with that greatest silent generation. They saw wealth and inheritance as an obligation. You know, they tried to live below their means. They tried to maximize how much they had so that they could transfer that to the next generation. And inheritance was seen as an obligation. Beginning with the baby boomers, though, they started to look at wealth transfer differently. One, they saw their obligation more in terms of raising and deploying children, providing them with opportunities for education or a start in life. But they, one, didn't see an obligation to minimize their lifestyle to try to transfer more. But two, they also started to see the negative effects of that inherited wealth, that unearned wealth. And they started to have concerns that with a little bit, my kids can do anything. With a lot, they can do nothing. And I'm not sure that I want my kids to do nothing. And so for a lot of my clients, it's not that they're uninformed about the need to do estate planning. They're uninspired and they're actually concerned about those negative effects. So you're quoting Warren Buffett in a roundabout way, mm -hmm. right? I want yes. my kids to have enough money so that they can do anything, but not so much that they can do nothing. He was in the news recently because his estate plan is kind of up in the air a little bit. He has pledged to give away 99% of his wealth. At least that's what he said. Most of it was, I guess, intended to go to the Gates Foundation and now that that organization is in a little bit of disarray because of the divorce of Bill and Melinda Gates. It's interesting. He's saying, I'm going to give away 99% of my wealth. And yet, statistically, we know 75% of high net worth folks say, I want to leave an inheritance. I just know my kids are not ready for it. So where's the in-between? And if we want our children, should they get this money to be good stewards of it? What do we have to do to prep them? Two good points. You know, on the Buffett, it's interesting because I think that was the kind of easy out, I'll be honest with you, it was in the past is, well, I'll avoid destroying my kids or ruining them and I'll just give those funds to charity. I think what people are realizing is it's actually easy to give your money away. It's not easy to give it away well. And I think we've all seen charities, other organizations that may be good intention, but sometimes the impact that they make is not always great. And I think sometimes we're concerned about outsourcing that on the charitable side. And I'm all for philanthropy. I'm all for giving. But I think we always have to make sure that we're doing more good than harm on that side. So I think there's some reluctance on that. On the other side, I tell clients, 
we tend to think of the amount of wealth that's transferred and the benefit as a direct correlation, right? So if, if transferring some wealth is good, more is better. My clients invariably feel like it's more of an inverted U-curve, right? You get to a point of diminishing and even negative return on wealth transfer. Again, you leave a child 500000 or a million, they can do anything in life. At $5 million or $10 million, they can be sidelined. And often, you know, it facilitates more destructive behavior. So for a lot of our clients, what we focus on, instead of just wealth transfer, is opportunity transfer. What's that mean? So it's focusing on things like education, entrepreneurism, home ownership, charitable engagement, things that actually require a cost on the part of the child so that they can bring value. So instead of buying a child a house, helping match a down payment for a house, uh, Mm -hmm. instead of buying a kid a business, having them work in that industry for two years, having them save up money, maybe helping to assist with that. But when we can focus on opportunity transfer, we let the kids go through their own cost analysis, not only to bring value, but to bring perspective to it. Rethinking that is such a good idea because when I look back and think, you know, what made me successful, a lot of it was I was mucking stalls at 13 because my parents would not pay for riding lessons. If I wanted any clothes, I would have to pay for them myself. We weren't poor. We were pretty solidly middle class. But there were things that I wanted that my parents were like, that is beyond the scope of what we owe you. We owe you uh, public education. We owe you food and basic clothing, not Jordache jeans. I grew up in the uh, 80s. And so I do think there is this part of being a striver is when there are things that you want and there's no way to get them. And I don't think that's an unusual story. I think people look around and say, well, I don't want to live in this town. I want that kind of car. I want that kind of opportunity. And that pushes them. And I do worry kids who are very comfortable Mm -hmm. don't have, you know, they're kind of like my parents have an awesome house and I can drive their car whenever I want. And I think it kills a lot of ambition. And I think it's the same problem we were talking about family business and how they fail after subsequent generations. I've seen, and this is just anecdotal evidence, but I've seen situations where parents said, you want to come into our business, go work in this industry for a couple of years, go get some experience, not with us first, learn it on somebody else's dime, figure out what your meager skills at this point are actually worth and learn something before we'll take you on. And those businesses, again, my, you know, random sample of half a dozen have done pretty well. So years ago, we had a situation where we had a client that had a family business and an heir apparent in the family. And the father sold the business to the child at full fair market value. And his concept was, I want you to want this because you want it, not because you're buying it at a discount. I mean, how many of us have shirts that we bought on sale that sit in our closet? We bought it because it's cheap, not because we like it. And so he made payments for several years. Dad moved away. And then uh, one day he called the dad up and he said, hey, I want you to come back and take you to dinner. And so he took dad to dinner and they were catching up. And then the son, with tears in his eyes, presented him a check for the remaining amount that was owed. And he said, thank you. He said, thank you, not just for the opportunity, but for believing in me. And so because he paid full value, he had full uh, appreciation of what it cost. And so it was a neat, powerful story of belief and as opposed to what we want to do, which is save our kids the pain. 
Jean had a statistic a minute ago, and I wanted to give the but half of that statistic, right? She said 75% of high net worth individuals think it's important to leave their kids an inheritance, but actually only 20% think their kids are prepared to handle that wealth. Why are they not ready? Is it lack of education? Are they just not strivers? Is it that the parents have protected them? I've tried to figure out when to have conversations about finance with my kids. And sometimes, like in the doing of life and you're busy, you know, they're not these like giant swaths of time where you can say, come on, son, let's sit down and walk through our financial plan. You know, there's a million other things to do, especially when they're relatively young. What is the issue there in that statistic? I think it's a couple of things. One is, We focus so much on preparing the wealth for the kids and so little time preparing the kids for the wealth. Uh Um, And I think part of that is the tyranny of the urgent, right? You know, at work, we try to be so intentional and we've got our 60 second elevator speech on who we are and what we do. And then it's home and it's soccer practice and homework and dinner and all of those things. But, you know, to me, it's like teaching kids to drive. How did we start? You start in the school parking lot at five miles an hour in the <laughs> SUV, right? And then you- We started in the cemetery, by the <laughs> okay. way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually did too. Uh, that's where my mom okay. took me. Creepy. And then you, okay. you, know, you okay. slowly work out to the streets and uh, you warn the neighbors and all mm-hmm. of that. With wealth transfer in America, mostly it's about putting kids in a Ferrari at 105 on the freeway and then we're shocked when they crash. And so- I think, Soledad, you gave a great example of starting with that learning the value of work and learning the value of cost. The only reason you did that and did that work is because you wanted writing lessons. You had something that you wanted more than the cost. And so you did it. Reminds me, I was walking through the mall once with my daughter. She was like 18 and she saw this shirt in the the window. She goes, oh, I like that shirt. And I said, well, you have money. You can buy it. And she said, mm, I don't like it my money that much. She goes, I just like it your money that much, you know. And so and there's a lot of truth to that. Right. And so that that you started to learn from an early age, that whole cost benefit analysis. Um, and so I think a large part of it is it actually is about helping your kids understand at little bits Um the, the value of money, the value of making those decisions. And I think some of my clients, they work so hard for their wealth and it came with pain. They're like, well, isn't part of the value of what I earned to make it easier on my kids? And in the process, they undercut that. So, David, can you pull this together for us? I mean, we're talking about really a transfer of values much more than we're talking about a transfer of stuff or of wealth, of cash and investments. But really, we have to do both. So Soledad and I have both just been going through this estate planning exercise and... Circle of hell. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) but that's a a fair description. It takes a while. It can be a little tedious. The back and forth with the attorney can get to be a lot. What has to happen? What tactical steps should... The people who are listening to this who say, yeah, I got to do something. I haven't looked at my estate plan for a couple of years or I don't even have one. Where do they start? 
Yeah, good question. Well, first, Soledad, I can't believe you don't like dealing with death and taxes. I mean, that's... Uh... You know what? I, I, if it were only death and taxes, I'd be totally fine with that. I can't yeah. manage death and taxes. It's all yeah. the other stuff piled on. I'm yeah. cool with dying. I actually, yeah. like, I think that comes at the end of a good life. I do not mind. It's negotiating all the details around your estate planning. That's the torture of the process. You are so right. It's the... Because I, I just went through this. It's if you should predecease <laughs> your spouse and your kids and his kids are both still around, how are we going to divide up these two pieces of property that nobody wants to go to anymore anyway, right? Like it's it's these tiny little who's the executor after the executor after the executor. Th- that's the stuff that makes me nuts. Torture. Yeah, and 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 obviously you do have to deal with those details. But I would say two things. One, be able to understand the why of your wealth. You know, the families that most successfully transfer wealth, the number one characteristic among those that I've seen is that they know who they are, what they value, and what they believe. They have clarity of their why, and it drives everything else. I call it a because, therefore. So many of us live in an if-then world. If I do this, then I'll get this. If I spend this time at work, then I'll get a promotion. And it's all expectation-based. What Gail showed me and examples of other stewards is they live because, therefore, model. Because I value this, therefore, this is what I'll do. And that when your driver is your why, it actually makes everything much simpler. You know, Roy Disney said, decisions are a lot easier in life when you know what you value. So I I would say that. And then when it comes to the kids, I think every child, especially in, in high net worth families, should know the answer to three questions. What can I expect because I'm a member of this family? What can I expect in terms of relationships, support, money, all of those things? Number two, what should I not expect simply because I'm a member of this family? And then number three is, what's expected of me? I will tell you this, by and large, in the families that I work with, kids don't know the answers to those three questions. I think that's Um, really true. That's really good. I think that's really true. I would add one more to that list. When can I expect it? I think timing is particularly important. You say teach kids in little bits, and you're giving us sort of the framework for how to think about our estate planning. But what's the first step? Starting your estate planning, if you're feeling overwhelmed or you really don't even know what to do, start with what? It kind of depends on on the age of the child. But, you know, I had a client who uh, over the years developed a very large real estate portfolio, owned a lot of different apartment buildings, uh, multifamily, other things like that. And he's trying to figure out he had teenage children and he's trying to figure out how do I teach him how to run 70 properties? And what I said is you didn't start with 70 properties. You, You started with one. So what he actually did is we spun off one rental property into an LLC and we put he and the kids in charge of that. And they sat down and went through what's an income statement? What does it look like to have income and expenses? What are utilities and taxes? How do you decide how much you charge in rent and those kind of things? It's that that mentoring and apprenticeship that we've kind of lost. You know, we used to grow up more communally where you would learn and watch your mom. You'd learn and watch your dad. Uh, now everybody goes off to the office and you know, people, kids don't see those things. And so I think it's about age-appropriate ways. And I think kids can actually 
know and understand more than we sometimes give them credit for. But sometimes life is too big. We've got to shrink it down to something that they can understand. And so those kids have done a great job. They go over, they uh, sweep the lot, they uh, they check and see that their renters are paying. I mean, it's amazing the level of engagement because we've got it down to something that they could understand and then they can build from that. And how about for people who are trying to figure out where to dip their toe into estate planning? I, I'm in the middle of mine. My daughter's been kind of listening in on all this. She actually asked me, like, so what does this mean that we get? Like, can you just explain? Is it everybody in your life who you love gets 10%? We just divide it all up. And and I was actually like, that's a great question. And as soon as I get through this estate planning, which is complicated and and a lot, I don't know how anybody could do it by themselves, I was like, we're going to actually sit down and have a family meeting and discuss those three questions that you talked about, right? Like, here's what we expect from you. Here's what you can expect from us. And here's what we don't expect or you should not expect. And then the timing, of course. Here's when these things kick in. Like, I don't know why it's a big secret. In my family, my parents were not wealthy, but it was always a big secret, right? Like, it, the unveiling of the will, you know, where everybody <laughs> sits in a room and, and waits to hear, like, did they love me or did they not love me? And it's so ridiculous. I think it should just be open. So if you're trying to start estate planning, how do you begin? You know, it's funny because I mentioned that greatest generation. They're also known as the silent generation. They were a generation that did not talk about money. And it was a taboo subject in families. So part of it is breaking down those taboos. Now, that doesn't mean you get out your balance sheet and your your financial statement and go over it with your kids. But again, your daughter there, she was asking about those expectations. I think it can be as simple as, as you head into adulthood, here's what you can expect. If you're working in school, we're going to help you with that. If you have a great idea for a business and you're really engaged, we want to help with that. If you want to save some money for a house, we'll help with that. But we're not sending you pizza and soda pop money. Uh, we're not bailing you out if you have financial issues. And it actually comes with a statement of belief that you believe they can do those things themselves. I've seen the here's what you can expect conversation, particularly when it happens a little bit further down the line, cause some issues. That all of a sudden, the older generation lives a lot longer than they expected to live. All of a sudden, they need care that they didn't expect to need and maybe the 2008 market crash hit along the way. There's less money than there was. How do you make sure that this generation of future inheritors isn't banking on your wealth? You know, it's funny. It, even kids who say they're bad at math are good at division. Uh, they can, <laughs> you know, they, they get mom and dad's net worth. They divide it by the number of kids. It's amazing. how, And you actually see it in their eyes as they're like calculating. But that's why I say it's not necessarily important to get out the financial statement because it's going to change. It's going to change based on how long people live, the health needs they have, the market's ups and downs and things like that. So to me, we should not focus on the assets uh, we should focus on the principles. But I'm also a fan of age-appropriate, other ways, also involving kids in, in some wealth transfer earlier on. How many inheritors inherited in the 50s, 60s, 70s? You know, providing even modest amounts of assistance to kids in their 20s and 30s, one, helps them learn life's lessons. They can be smart or foolish with some as opposed to all. It also targets it when they probably need it more. 
So uh, to the extent that they can, even in modest ways, I like to see clients engage more in that intentional, thoughtful wealth transfer during life than just, hey, we'll see how much we have, divide it up and dump it down on you unprepared after we're gone. In all fairness, I was a little taken aback when my daughter, I mean, right, we we're basically having a conversation of, so when you drop dead, exactly, what am I getting? How I'm, much? Just be <laughs> precise right, to the penny, exactly. if possible, but, mom. But you know what? I, I really like, so once I got over that bit of shock, I really thought it was a good conversation. I really thought it was a good opening to exactly what you're talking about. I had in my old estate plan that my kids would get some money or something at age 50, partly because they were newborns back then. And we're like, what if they're not responsible? <laughs> what if they end up being a hot mess? I mean, so, you know, now that we've sort of seen the path, I think we're we're starting to rethink a lot of kind of the strategy and the the values behind it. But I, I think you're right. I think you think about little bits every step of the way so that people can have a strategy themselves and they're not pining all their hopes on you dropping dead so they can get some cash. Everybody understands the plan. I just don't think it should be a secret. Completely agree. And David, I would love to revisit this at some other time. You're fascinating and clearly so full of great information. We need to take a break, though. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Anytime. David's book is called The Gift of Lift, Harnessing the Power of Stewardship to Elevate the World. A little tiny goal right there. David York, nice to talk to you. Thank you. Anytime. Thank you. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com.